we have to reduce our weight bias and stigma. We cannot continue to assume that patients will want to see us if they know that they're going to be judged just because of the way they look, just like we will talk about race. Weight bias is a significant mm-hmm. importance and we have to do better. We cannot assume that because that person's walking down the street, that they're lazy, they're slothful, they don't exercise, they eat horribly because you don't know. And you're judging the book by its cover, just like you could have just because I'm black and that's just unacceptable. So we have to do better. Okay, so welcome to the Quacks and Hypochondriacs podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Bill Farrow. I started my career as a chiropractor and health clerks, turned into a gut health expert. So if you wanted to call me a quack, you probably would not be the first. On this podcast, we're gonna give you the inside scoop on the so-called quacks of the world, the quackery claims who you should and shouldn't listen to, and why sometimes hypochondriacs have every right to be paranoid about their health. With me, with I think a alcoholic beverage in hand, is my co-host, Aaron O'Hearn, a it's Jennifer, been a long week. You deserve it. <laughs> Does she really have one? That's funny. I, well, I'm it's, drinking it's, kombucha. I think she's but, drinking a martini. But, but kombucha has alcohol in it. Good point. So we're on the same playing level. And it's only because I have had all my kids virtual this week because they were exposed on Sunday for reasons that they shouldn't have been. And it's just been a tough week. But the good news is, is we just got the results back and they are negative. So I am thrilled about that. And I did a little happy dance and I'm going to do a sloppy dance in about an hour. (laughs) Well, my my co-host is is an ABC News uh, anchor, fitness fanatic, relevant to this conversation. She is the hypochondriac. So uh, Mm -hmm. we're always looking for different things. So Dr. Stanford has 29 letters of acronyms finishing her name. That alone gives me carpal tunnel syndrome if I had a right to you. Uh, <laughs> that is know. hilarious. Actually, I received an award today and I was so shocked that they were able to fit everything on the plaque. It was like, it, it like brought joy. I'd also uh, probably for the hypochondriac here. <laughs> yes. <laughs> might, appe- might appease to you. I may have to, to show it to you guys before we sign off today. I think you'll really find it lovely to look at, I guess. <laughs> Well, if uh, anyone was feeling a little bit quacky or hypochondric <laughs> about their place in this world, looking at all your accolades would definitely yeah, make them feel very, very inferior. Oh, that's so funny. Uh, I'm so I, down to earth too. It's so funny that like, I mean, those things just, you know, have come and I, you know, I'm thankful, but I don't know if it like matches up to the personality. So we'll see. <laughs> when I see that type of stuff, it just seems I see an inquisitive mind. I see someone right. who's incredibly mm-hmm. curious and people that are incredibly <laughs> curious just give you the greatest insight. So super excited right. to talk to you. This is a topic that I don't think people normally bring the two together. Um, so right. we, know, we know we have this obesity epidemic, um, which was more of a, a, you know, it's kind of set us up for what's happening with COVID and our mental health crisis. And then when you bring the fact that the uh, racial inequality and potentially the racist part of this or the systemic racial issues there, um, that's what you've really been studying and, and talking about. So we'd love to hear, A, what you do kind of in your day job. And then- Okay, uh, and then what <laughs> that'll be funny. Yeah, and then what, <laughs> what you've learned here now and, and how it relates to obesity and you know systemic racism. So as mentioned by Bill, I'm Dr. Fatima Cody-Stanford. I'm a fellowship-trained obesity medicine physician and scientist. I'm also an internist, I mean, an internal medicine physician, and also a pediatrician, because why not do two residencies? And so uh, I care for patients between the ages of two and 90 um, with the disease of overweight and obesity, and have dedicated my life to this work. So after doing my residencies in internal medicine and pediatrics, I came to Boston, to National, to Harvard, to do a three-year fellowship to learn all the ins and outs of caring for patients with obesity. I've been a researcher for the last 25 years. So my research, I've published over now 100 peer-reviewed articles in medical journals like the New England Journal, the Journal of the American Medical Association, Annals of Internal Medicine, et cetera. And a lot of this work revolves around, I would say, two key themes. Number one, overweight and obesity within both the pediatric and adult population. Um, and looking at treatment strategies, policy issues, treatment strategies that range across from behavioral and lifestyle modification to medications like pharmacotherapy, and then to surgical interventions. And then also this other umbrella of the work that I do that has really made a big collision within the last year and a half is looking at issues surrounding racial and ethnic disparities in care 
and I think that when we talk about what I call the three pandemics and what I just recently did my TEDx talk on was the collision of three pandemics and they include um, obesity, COVID-19 and racism. And so when we look at this idea of how these interact, because people are kind of confused. First of all, they're like, what is she talking about? Obesity? She's a doctor in obesity. What does that even mean? I think the reason why people usually kind of have that response to obesity, for example, is because we see obesity as a lifestyle choice instead of the disease that it actually is. There are reasons why some people can eat, you know, one thing and gain zero pounds. And then another person walks past the pizza shop and they gain 10 pounds just by visualization. Now, of course, that's a bit of an exaggeration, but there are reasons why different people store more and hold more. And a lot of that really just has to do with how their brain, the hypothalamus, particularly how it interacts with um, the environment and how it interacts with their genetics and how it interacts with many different things. So when we look at this collision and why I talk about COVID and obesity as a collision, is obesity is characterized by chronic inflammation. And so if I were to have a patient as a new patient coming in with obesity, and measured different inflammatory markers in their blood, we'd see them elevated. Not universally, different people would have different levels of um, elevation, but they would have this underlying kind of chronic inflammation. We know, as we all have seen with almost 600,000 dead here in the United States, that COVID-19 presents with acute inflammation, right? Something acutely happens. So when you put an acute on a chronic process, you can imagine that those two don't jive well, right? They just don't interact very well. And so the reason why we see the highest or the, the most common reason for death for those of us that are under the age of 60 um, to COVID is unfortunately obesity. Now, so let's look at the racial and ethnic piece of that. 42.4% of US adults have the disease of obesity. That was based upon 2018 estimates. The average weight gain based upon the American Psychological Association during the pandemic for adults 29 pounds. So we can maybe say that that shifted a bit. Millennials actually, on average, I think they're waking 41 pounds during the pandemic. But what we do know is that racial and ethnic minorities have higher rates of obesity in the country. I'll focus on the demographic that I represent, which is Black women. And when we're looking at Black women, about 60% of Black women have obesity, and then another 20% have overweight. So we're talking about 80% of Black women with overweight and obesity here in the United States. And so then we wonder, why are we seeing, in addition to the fact that we have these racial inequities in care, but this high preponderance of obesity within the population? And we're wondering why we're seeing the numbers that we were seeing, not now as we're, we're starting to ramp up on vaccination. So I'm going to stop there because there's so much to say, but I think this kind of yields itself to understanding why I'm excited to share my voice today. I'm thankful to have this platform to speak about this work. And, you know, I think I was put here at this given time to do this work, to really shift the narrative regarding those three different domains of obesity, COVID-19, and racism. Yeah, and to call something out for our listeners is the inflammation piece, which I think many people would be shocked to hear that as the, the root cause. Most people, and, and I resonate with that, we take people through a gut health, low inflammatory food as medicine protocol for 30 to 60 days, and wouldn't you know it, insulin resistance goes down, their A1Cs drop, they come up blood pressure medication, mental health gets better, sleep gets better. But when you position it to most folks and say, well, there's 40% of us or more are obese, which is just mind boggling, right? Because I remember when I started this uh, crusade, that number was 17 or 18% just 20 years ago. Thinking about where it's gone is just unbelievable. And so people always point, you know, and I think in your, your view, people are either racist for your color or weight. Those are the two biggest ones, right? They're either going to call those two forms of bias, right? The two biggest forms Mm -hmm. of bias, race bias, and then weight bias in this country. And race definitely leads the way. I mean, we can just turn on the news at any given point and understand that, but the weight bias is right there behind it. And then you imagine if you happen to be a black person with obesity, right? One key thing I'm going to change build that you said, I don't ever use the word obese, although I'm saying it just to to correct you, is that obese is a label and obesity is a disease. So um, that label can be seen as stigmatizing. So what I would say is a patient with obesity or patient with mild, moderate or severe. I also don't use the word morbid to explain obesity because we don't call it like morbid COVID or morbid, (laughs) morbid diabetes or morbid heart disease. All those things can kill us, morbid cancer. But you can see that even in how we we reference obesity, when someone has you know severe state, that we have our biases that are entrenched, and it's like it's super entrenched into medicine. We fail, we fail patients with obesity every single day. But we fail we fail patients that look like me, 
that are black also every single day. And that 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 is a you know that is a recipe for disaster. I think is the way I Ab- think. About absolutely, it. you know, yeah. if you generally when we when I talk with folks, I say you have a lot more potential energy than others, and I'm going to help you liberate it. I'm going to help you tap mm-hmm. into that energy source because really that's all it is. It's just a barrier to that expression, and that barrier to expression is the mechanism of inflammation and insulin resistance. Mm-hmm. And but yet most people, when you look at the the common biases, as you mentioned, so. Uh, color of your skin or being overweight, right? Having too much adipose tissue skin are the two biggest biases. Well, mm-hmm. what's almost a little bit worse about the obese bias, or, you know, the, the being overweight bias is they think, well, you could do something about that. I can't do anything about the color of my skin, mm-hmm. but you should be able mm-hmm. to do something about that. And then they always go to, man, if you, you just must be lazy and unmotivated. So now exactly. you get this extra and really it's no, I have so much stress, so much toxicity, so much inflammation that I, I can't, I'll never do this. When you're under those conditions, the human craves poor food and then it gets into that vicious cycle. So when you talk about the systemic part of this and the, the racism, is it more so the systemic racist part or the amounts of stress and demographics, right? So a, a, someone who's more demographically challenged financially, emotionally, and of course, they're subjugated to racism. Is it the stress of that environment that is leading to this? Yeah, no, I'm going to actually reference, I, I, and I love referencing this study because it's the best study that's ever looked at it, the Black Women's Health Study, which I'm not a, an investigator on, so I, I'm not tooting my own horn, I'm tooting other people's horns. But the Black Women's Health Study really investigates middle-income to high-income Black women, so all college-educated Black women. And then the study back in 2014, um, Dr. Uh, Yvette Cozier and her colleagues at Boston University Medical Center actually looked over time, over like a 20-year period, at both um, instances where the women would report, and it's over 4,000 Black women, either every day or a lifetime racism, heightened levels based upon their self-report. And what they found in those individuals that reported more every day in lifetime racism, keep in mind, we're talking about middle to upper income Black women, all college educated, so a certain different demographic that those that experienced more, internalized more, actually had higher levels of inflammatory markers at baseline and higher levels of adipose tissue or fat tissue stored, particularly in those areas we don't like in the midsection. And so I would say that even if we take a, uh, you know, that socioeconomic piece out of the way, we're still seeing those same issues. And interestingly enough, I'm gonna, for the men that are out there that are feeling left out, if we flip the coin and we look at just men in this country and we look at white, black and Hispanic men, Based upon the data that we have from the CDC, we actually find that as Black men and Hispanic men, as they climb the socioeconomic ladder, so those at the highest levels actually have the highest obesity rates. Now, interestingly enough, that differs from what we see for women, for both white, Black, and Hispanic women, as we climb on average, our obesity rates decline, which seems to kind of fit the narrative that we want to put in our brain. But it deviates from men. And the reason why we think that is, or the the hypotheses that we posit for this is that there's this idea of John Henryanism. And I don't know if you guys remember John Henry, like as he worked hard, basically as black men or Hispanic men climb the ladder, they're no longer just responsible for their nuclear family. They're responsible for large swaths of the community. Everyone's looking to them for financial resources, support, emotional support, And that leads to more stress and more burden on them as they continue to climb. Where for white men, as they continue to climb, they are able to just more so focus on their nuclear family and don't have those additional stressors that are brought in that lead to that increase in inflammation and stress and storage. So that's what's being posed as a reason, but it shows you how complex this question is. They also find that there's some genetic differences. So for example, there was a big, what we call genome-wide association study that came out of the NIH actually back in about 2018. So this is when the study, and they looked at like 30,000 individuals and they looked at white individuals, Asian, those that were black, meaning of African descent here in the United States. And then they looked at three different countries in Africa, Nigeria, Ghana, and Kenya. And they looked, you know, kind of on a, a genome level to see if they saw any differences that would account for changes in body mass index or differences. And they found this variant called a SEMA 4D variant that was only present in Black individuals here in the United States, you know, descendant of slaves here in the United States, and in those that were in either Kenya, Nigeria, or Ghana, they did not see this variant that accounted for a five BMI point difference in anyone that was white or Asian, for example, which was the other group that they evaluated, 30,000 individuals. So 
we have some issues that are related to like just the environment, some that are related to the genetic level, some that are heredity, right? Genetics, epigenetics, et cetera. And it makes my job really complex, but really exciting, right? Like if you go back to that thing of saying being an inquisitive and trying to continuously learn more, because every day, like even in the research that I'm doing or in that others are doing, we're finding something new about this disease that happens to be obesity that happens to disproportionately affect communities of color. Doctor, so there's so many questions yeah, going on right? In my head right now, um, <laughs> but I can't, I don't articulate things nearly as, as well as you do. But the first, so coming from my background, because I know Dr. Bell just talked about the inflammation piece, you know, my history as being a reporter in Philadelphia I've seen a lot, right? And, and which sure you have. probably speaks more to the socioeconomic piece of this. Mm-hmm. And what I have been repeatedly told and what I've witnessed is, you know, just because someone is obese doesn't mean that it, it could absolutely 100% mean that they're going hungry, that they are suffering from hunger in this country mm-hmm. because, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. we have a major problem with food deserts in Philadelphia. And I, I, I mean, I've seen it firsthand. There's just no access, you know, it's corner stores. But I guess my question is like in your research and, you know, as we're listening to you and learning and trying to understand as best we can, Mm -hmm. where do you even start? Because there's so many things coming into play and I, you know, you're looking at as, okay, obesity is a problem for for everyone, for this entire mm-hmm, country, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, there, mm-hmm. there are, we've identified that certain people are more prone to this disease. And I don't even know, I mean, that comes a lot from what you're, what you're talking about. And right. I, I do believe it comes from systemic racism because of that stress. And, and I'm going off course here, but I think when you answer this, if you could just address, people need to understand what systemic racism even is, because I, okay. I think people okay. have a misconception thinking that, oh, they're victims of racism. That's Mm -hmm. not necessarily the same thing. It's that we just live in a culture that has built itself economically and socially off making other people be disadvantaged. Absolutely. Well, I think you actually defined it, but I'll I'll try to add one. I think you did a really good job. I'm so shocked. Right. She did such a good job. She did a great job. I think that that's exactly when we're talking about systemic racism is that our society it's built up. I mean, on the backs of slaves, you know, people ask me, and this is often an uncomfortable conversation when people ask me, oh, where are you from? And I'm like, well, I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. Okay. But no, but where are you from? And I'm like, you know, I was born and raised there. My parents were also born and raised there, but, but where were you from? I, and so this is the response that often draws um, significant pause and maybe not further questioning. I say, this is my response via some slave ship to the Southern portion of the United States that's where I'm from. And so I don't know, somewhere in Africa, the yeah. slave ship. That is the reality. I mean, that is the reality of, of being born and raised in the South and being a Black person in this country, which means that for centuries, you know, the labor that my people did, I'm um, compensated. It went unvalued. Even as we look to medical school, I talk about this story, which is going to be shocking to you. So I went to the Medical College of Georgia for my medical degree. And if you look in the early archives of this medical school founded back in 1828, um, there's a black gentleman in all of the pictures. And you're like, well, wait a minute, it's 1828. There's the Emancipation Proclamation, there's slavery, there's the South, there's Georgia. So you start putting this all together. I was present in the class and when the historian took me on this tour, I was like, well, who's that guy? And she said, well, Fatima, I'm so glad you asked. That was Grandison Harrison. He was a slave purchased by the medical school for the anatomy and physiology department. His sole role was to rob the grave sites, particularly the black grave sites for the early medical students to be able to learn anatomy and physiology. So he was purchased by seven of the faculty member. Eventually his wife and his son were purchased and eventually he became free because he outlived the seven people that purchased him. But that was his role. That is how our country's built. Those are stories that when you bring them up, they burn, they sting, but they're the reality of where we are. One of my earliest memories in life was the Klan burning a cross on my lawn at the age of three. We talk about when it's too early to teach kids about racism. Well, you know, I don't know if my parents wanted to start having the conversation at three, but you know what? They have to explain to their daughter, who's very inquisitive, who's three, like, wait a minute, I thought the cross was supposed to be a good thing. I remember. I don't understand why is it burning? Why are these people in 
sheets list. I don't understand. We don't have the luxury of being able to get older to learn. So when we go back to this idea of systemic racism, it's knowing that just because of who you are, you're at a disadvantage because of how you look. We are seen as less than, even with all of these letters and titles that I've accumulated in my lifetime, when I walk into a hospital, if I have on a hospital gown, I'm seen as just another black body. And I know that because I've been in a hospital and been treated as if that's just what I am. It's entrenched that people that look like me aren't as good as, aren't as successful as, aren't capable as, despite the fact that we were behind a lot of what is. Mm-hmm. That's the best way I can think to explain it. Or we're put in the place because of. And, oh, I love that, Erin. You speak my language. I guess my point, just to bring this full circle, mm-hmm. is that in itself, living with that is an enormous stress on the body, which when you tie that into stress being a big contributor to obesity and inflammation, that's kind of where I was going. Absolutely people to understand that you have all these degrees, right? This wonderful education, but that stress of still living with that or those assumptions is really, and I don't know if that is what accounts for that incline that you were talking about with men, with black and Hispanic men. I do men, think so. Right? It's this constant need to prove that I belong in this space. Obviously being at Harvard, right? The creme de la creme you know, we presume that it's, you know, the, the pinnacle of the ivory tower. I mean, we still have our, our issues. The reality is that even though it was founded, Harvard um, Medical School, for example, in the 1700s, there have been only six Black women in the history of Harvard Medical School to become a full professor to date, you know, literally six people. What does that say to people like me that are coming through? What, what does that say? My CV currently is 132 pages but obviously I have to continue to do more. What does it have to be 500 before I finally become a pulper? I don't, I don't know. But that's the reality that even in the places that we hold in high esteem, it's built on the backs of systemic racism. It's built on the backs of not acknowledging, not promoting, not valuing people that look like me. That leads to poor chronic disease. They did a study actually that came out of Yale Medical School I think about a decade ago, and they looked at the health outcomes of individuals that were finishing med school. So here again, going back to Bill's question of how do we control for that socioeconomic? So these are all doctors. And what they found was that for the black doctors that were finishing Yale Medical School, so a well-known name, that they were dying sooner. They had significantly more health issues, higher weight status than their peers, even though when you looked at them at the time of while they were being educated, there were Um, some similarities between the two groups, they begin to deviate pretty quickly. All doctors, but seeing significant differences. And I think it's when we have those studies like that, which where you try to control for things that can cause significant differences in outcomes, that we really begin to see how prominent racism plays a role in health outcomes and health disparities. How often do you, Dr. Stanford, Mm -hmm. feel that Claire, that burden, that thought of these people think I'm less than uh, the systemic racism, because now you're studying this and, and you feel it. You're part of your study, right? You're part of this. How, oh, yeah. if, you, if you had a guess, like, how often is this running through your brain? You're driving down all day, street. every day, I, all I, day, every day. I had a feeling that was the case. So my point is, is that there's uh, physical stress and then there's emotional stress and how your body responds and mind responds to that stress really depends on where yeah. you are. Uh, on your foundation, right? So do you have the right nourishment? So like you can go to boxing and if you're in the right spot, boxing will work well for you. If you're not in the right spot, it will give you tons of cravings. You'll actually gain weight. And because you are prepared and thinking of this, maybe that all day, every day, isn't as much stress because it drives you to do better and drives you to do more just like most, right? Because the people that I come across with, we're we're covered by about 40 health plans and we do it digitally. They they come to us from all walks and seasons of life. And these folks are stressed. So in one way, it could be they'd be focused about systemic racism. The other way, they just focused that their, their kid has issues at school or their relationships falling apart. Like most humans in our society are just waking up stressed and, and they're stressed about anything and everything. And like I've, dying from a runny nose. Yeah, exactly. Like like contract. And there's COVID. That's why, you know, going back to that COVID, remember how much weight people gain. The key thing that everyone always says when they hear that number, they're like, oh, because everybody was inactive. And I'm like, yeah, maybe there was a change in activity, but let's talk about the stress of being in a pandemic that we don't know the end date to, right? Like exactly. that affected 
everyone, you can, whatever your gender identity, your race, whatever, anywhere, if you lived on the earth at some time during this pandemic, you felt that there's a sense of uncertainty of like, okay, wait a minute, we're now at like 30% vaccine. So when do we like, can we like go outside? Can we, I mean, these things are, they may seem minimal, but when you think about it all every day and you're thinking about Aaron, okay, wait a minute, my kids are going to, to make sure they're fine. But then, I mean, these are just, these are things we didn't think about, right? Like we thought right. about, we had stress, don't worry. We all had stress, right? We had stress, but then you added this layer of like a pandemic that Bill Gates saw coming because he recorded, I don't, he, he yes. knew it was coming somehow he knew, but the rest of us were like, what is Bill talking about? He's, he's, a, he's Microsoft. What does he know? And somehow, you know, we had a pandemic that completely changed the course of how we do everything. So I really think that stress of the pandemic and not knowing and still not knowing to this day, like, like what does life look like in this, whatever this post COVID world looks like? What is that? I don't know. I mean, I'm a doctor that studies this and I don't, I can't give, I can give you like a guesstimate of potentials, but I can't give you a date. And the people are like, well, what happens when I had COVID and, and two years later, I don't know. Cause no one's had COVID and had two years later to study. We don't, we don't know the answers. There's so much uncertainty surrounding the thing that looms over us. That's what I think is the most major contributor to that weight gain, that big number that I Absolutely. threw out. And, and that's yeah. why I think the answer, as much as we unpack this and say, there's so much more questions, so much more questions. Right. I think the answer is in just the awareness of right. all the things that could take us down as a human. Yeah. No, knowing that the antibiotics in our food, the overuse of antibiotics, we just had on from Ohio. She was Amazing talking about, you know, she she goes out and trains doctors, stop giving out antibiotics all the time. It's not great. It's in our food. It's in our water. It's stress. The awareness that, yes, actually the systemic racism could be predisposing you to obesity. Not that you're a bad person. Similarly, if you're a white person dealing with this, it's also not your issue because you have- There's other things. There's other things, right? So let's leave them off the hook. And but like, I'm so glad you brought up medications. I didn't wasn't planning on bringing that up, but I, I would be remiss not to do this, right? We know that medications are a huge contributor to weight gain, meaning we as docs cause the problem. And we think 20% of the weight struggles in the United States today are due to meds that we prescribe for other issues. And I like to run, like rattle off this laundry list because it's it's these are just the ones I can think of bring it, immediately. Bring it. So you ready? You guys ready? Yes. It's not, you're going to think I should just be an auctioneer and leave my career in medicine. Okay, you ready? So lithium, Depakote, Tegretol, Celexa, Cymbalta, Effexor, Zoloft, Paxil, Prozac, Ambien, Trazodone, Lunesta, Gabapentin, Deglabarite, Glipside, Glimepiride, Longstrom, Insulin, Longstrom, Prednisone, Atenolol, Metoprolol, just to name the ones I could think of right that second. So it says to me that if we, and sometimes we need to use them, right? Like sometimes we have to use these meds, but I'm putting you in a med that I've seen some patients gain 80, 100 pounds. And you can see it. I'm looking at their weight graph and it's like steady, steady, steady drug. But then they have bipolar disorder or maybe they have some type of psychiatric disorder or they have some type of heart disease. And if I try to take them off, I'm no longer treating that. But then I'm blaming them for this. But I put them on the med that caused this. Mm -hmm. And I published a paper that just came out in uh, last week in the Journal of National Medical Association and looks at all of the medical boards. There are 24 medical boards in the United States. And we looked at how well are we teaching about obesity? I guess I'm sure you guys probably know that we learn nothing about obesity in medical school. We have a few doctors that say there's like an hour. No, there's, there's not even really, you know, like if you look at it, there's no universal curriculum. And I actually did a study before that, that I published in the international journal of obesity to see like, not just what are we doing in the U S because maybe we just aren't great. What are we doing the whole world? So I looked at the entire world, everything that's ever been published in the literature for the last 10 years to see like, oh, maybe like Sweden's doing a great job or, you know, like you want to be able to lift one country up. No one, no country is teaching medical students, residents or fellows about the disease of obesity, but it's the most prevalent chronic disease in the entire world. It's not just a U.S. issue. We think it's just, oh, only those people in the U.S. False. I get asked to speak all around the world on obesity because it's a worldwide issue. I mean, there's certain places where there are higher levels, but it's not like no country is like sitting there not dealing with it as an issue. So why are we not teaching the people they tell you, right? So then the commercial will be like, they'll do all that fast talking and they'll be like, go see your doctor. But if the doctor doesn't know, that's problematic. Why are we teaching about everything else and we somehow forget the disease of obesity? I think it's a travesty for people that are seeking care from docs and the doc knows nothing. When we 
look at magazines and we're looking at ads right now for Athleta or, I mean, I don't mean to point out Athleta, but anything, Maybelline, right. whatever you're, you're talking about. Right. And, and I'm more talking about women because it is, mm-hmm. women have been fed this idea that they have to be perfect in a lot of different ways, right? Proportionally, mm-hmm. their bodies, their faces, their skin color, their hair, whatever. Exactly. Um, so obviously things have gotten, advertisers have caught on to the fact that no one really looks like the people in the magazines and they are more inclusive of people who look different in a variety of ways. Yeah. <laughs> so... But my question to you is the representation, I think, is wonderful to to make sure that we define that beauty is defined as, you know, who you are, not what you look like. At the same time, I do see these images of people who do suffer from obesity. Okay, Mm -hmm. and what I I guess my question is, if it's a disease and if it's Mm -hmm. detrimental to your health, should we be saying because this is what how I take it? It's okay. Like, we're just going to accept you how you are because wh- let me, let, my- I, I, I have an answer for you. I have okay, an answer for you, Aaron. Okay. So, so this is the thing. So, and I, and hopefully I'm going to, I'm going to use this illustration to help paint my, my response. Dr. Stanford, okay, so, yes. if, you, if you could dumb it down, cause she went to Cornell. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, was, that was in 1995. It was a lot easier to get in that. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. All right. So let me tell you, let me tell you how I'm thinking about it. Um, when I first moved to Boston, I lived on the North shore. And for you guys that don't know that, you take like this commuter rail, which is kind of like an Amtrak style train into the city. Every morning at 7.13, I got on that train and I saw this gentleman who had very severe obesity, very, very, very severe obesity. I didn't know his weight until later, which I'll tell you just in a few seconds. Um, anyway, he was one of the conductors on this train. He was taking the tickets. He'd move up. He'd slow the things. He'd climb things. I was like, wow, you know, he secretly was like my dream patient because I could see him in action, but I could see this incredible degree of obesity that he was carrying around. And so I thought it would be a little bit presumptuous to hand him my business card. So I didn't, although I really wanted to. And every morning on my way into the city, I thought about this. I want you to fast forward three years later, I walk into my office and I just see a name, right? I go in as a new patient and I like my face lights up and I'm like, oh my gosh, you're the conductor on the train. My dream patient sitting here. No, I didn't, you know, just kind of showed up in my office. His mom, he's 45 years old. His mom's in the office with him. He has no cognitive deficits. So I want you to think about his mom, a 45 year old man bringing his mom to the doctor's appointment. She immediately starts crying. She says, you're the first doctor in his entire life that believed that he did anything other than just sit around and eat and be lazy. And she cried for the first 15 minutes of our hour long appointment. Like literally I could not get her to stop crying. She was at that appointment to be there to support and say, Hey doc, you know, I know you think he's this and this and this, but let me tell you, my son does X. She didn't have to do that with me. Cause I, I'd, I'd been watching this guy. I secretly wanted to see him. He's in my office. When I saw him in his initial visit, he was 550 pounds. And that's obviously quite a bit of mass. Like I mentioned, and we have worked together since then. We've we've been able to get off 250 pounds. So he now has been stable for about the last four or five years at about 300 pounds. Now, if you were to see him, and so going back to your question that you asked, if you were to see him walking down the street, you might be like, oh my gosh, he let himself go. He needs to work harder. His brain defends the set point at 300 pounds, which is way better than 550. I think we can agree, but it's not maybe 200 or 210, you know, which may be more ideal for his frame. And so when I see these ads, I support them being there because I don't know from whence they came. And I know that everyone has a gradation of where they are. So I never conform to the BMI scale. First of all, the BMI scale didn't have me involved, meaning there were no black people when the BMI scale was configured. And it wasn't configured by doctors. It was configured by the Metropolitan Life Insurance Tables um, Company, I'm sorry, back in the 1930s when blacks didn't matter. I think we still don't matter, but the, our, you know, the whole Black Lives Matter movement kind of supports that. You know, I think we matter, but, you know, whatever. I think so, we matter. We think we matter. <laughs> no, but you understand what I'm saying. So we just weren't, we weren't put in that. So I actually redrew the BMI chart back in 2019 for the Mayo Clinic proceedings. And I used real data from real people that are here, like now. And actually, interestingly enough, for Black women, particularly, the BMI curve shifts up ever so slightly, somewhere between 31 to 33 as being the normal cutoff. But it goes to show you that this confirmation to a number or a size is different for all of us. And this is, I'm going to use, this may sound a little bit of a shrift, but just, just bear with me for a second. 
when we think about different breeds of dogs, you know, a bulldog will always kind of look like a bulldog, they'll carry more mass, right? A chihuahua will always kind of be this little lean, little, little cute little thing. It'll be a Taco Bell dog, right? I mean, all of these things, there's some of it just how they're, the cards they're dealt, you know, kind of right. how they will be shaped. You can mix like a, you know, a chihuahua and a pit and maybe that, that looks a certain way, but you can understand that some people have different levels of where they'll be. And my goal, I always tell my patients, I never give them a target number. They always want me to give them a number and I never do. And if they're listening to me, they will agree with this um, statement. And they, they keep still asking five, 10 years later, well, what number? I'm like, you know, I'm not going to do that. I want to get them to the happiest, healthiest weight for them. So for that gentleman, going back to him, I think that 300 is where his happiest, healthiest weight is. He has no limitations. Imagine he had no limitations somehow at 550. But he's able to like literally do everything at this point. But that's where his brain is like, nope, this is where we are. This is the happiest, healthiest for him. So when I look at those ads, I think we can celebrate people across the domain, but recognize and treat the disease for what it is. So his disease is being treated as best as we can based upon the current tools we have available. And if something else comes about and I can continuously treat him, I will. But that's where he's come to. And I value him at 300, even though it's not maybe exactly where I would prefer him to be, but where that's where his body has responded. So I know it's a long-winded answer, but hopefully I can No, that makes me understand it a lot better. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I have to tell you, I think that what we have to get over, it opened my eyes a lot because I can't say that I wasn't looking at some of those images and thinking to myself, but that's not like being pre-diabetic is not healthy. Right. Like that's no, this and interesting. That, for interesting for him, he had no issues with his cholesterol, his sure. no characteristics of inflammation, no high blood pressure, no diabetes. He like, you know, with that significant amount of excess mass, which he's had for most of his life, which is why his mom still comes to his point where she doesn't come anymore. She trusts me now. She feels like I get it. But she did. I mean, right. a grown man, how many grown men do you know take their mommies to the doctor with them? to prove that they are who they say they are. I had never seen it before in my life, right. but I got it immediately when I came in and I responded with like this jubilation, like, my God, this is the guy, like, this is, this is my yeah. dream guy. Uh, and not, you know, my dream patient. Yeah, I know what you mean. And my husband's <laughs> listening to me. So I'm like, he's probably like, what is she saying? But my dream patient. And I'm like, wow, I can make an impact. And, and I have, and now his mom doesn't have to come to his appointments and he is his living his best life. Uh, the reason why no, no one gets trained in obesity is because we just think it's easy. Oh, they just need to move more, eat less, or it's education, mm -hmm. right? If someone doesn't know that a cheeseburger is bad for them. But then why, as you pointed out, why do all these medical students having this? Why are the CEOs of companies having obesity issues? Because it's copious amounts of stress and inflammation. And so mm -hmm. I just focus on the internal, reducing the inflammation <laughs> and as much stress as I can, like chemicals on their skin and, and the environment. And then the elimination reintroduction, they figure out what works best for them. And then to, they get to, as you said eloquently, what is the healthiest for them? What, what did they feel good? Never give them the, the number on the scale or whatever. Let them get there. And now that their gut is healthy, and just to, when I say the word cravings, when your gut is healthy and diverse, you actually start to crave healthier foods. When we get on the calls, people say, it's so crazy. I used to walk past a sugar bowl and I felt like I had to dive into it. Now it doesn't appeal to me. And I find myself eating an apple with some almond butter on it. And it's not because I told them they have to, or they have to watch their weight. It's just that they've made an increased diversity in their microbiome. So they actually start craving diverse foods and more healthy foods when they're under stress and the adrenal glands have been firing and all that. They are more apt to crave sodium, potassium, and sugar to fill that need. And so just by reducing inflammation alone, I don't have to do a lot of psychological counseling because physiologically I let them off the hook and, and not to belabor with people oh, well, we got to spend so much time with Tony Robbins and, and bring in Oprah and Dr. Phil and talk to you about your bad relationship with food. It's like, no, we have a poor relationship with our environment. And that's the first place to start. And to be aware of the things you're talking about, about the systemic racism that could play into that, uh, some of the parts of the genetics. But to solve for this, for 42% of Americans, we better do something quick and swift that can let everybody off the hook, give them the resources they need to see this success and then empower them long-term because we won't have the ability to follow through with them year two, year three, year four. It, what, are the, what are the most common chronic 
uh, comorbidities that you see? Is it hypertension with obesity? Is it anxiety, depression, digestive issues? All, all of all of all, the above. <laughs> all yeah. of it. We know of at least two hundred, about fourteen different cancers are related to obesity, osteoarthritis, idiopathic intracranial hypertension, or pseudotumor cerebri. All of you know non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which is you know not far behind obesity in terms of its prevalence. All of these things are derivatives or spring offs from obesity. The problem is. As docs, we learn how to treat all of those things. We know how to treat fatty liver. We know how to treat diabetes. We know how to treat high blood pressure. We know how to treat all of those. And when you ask a doc about how to treat the disease of obesity, they're off, you're often left with like kind of a startled look. I can ask them how to treat something like Bechet's disease, which you guys don't even know. But I tell you, if I ask any doctor walking down the street right now, they would rattle off exactly what Bechet's disease. Oh, it's characterized by ulcers and such, such, such. I've never seen it in my career. I don't know if I will see it in my career. I see obesity every day, all day. And even if I weren't someone that's specializing is, is in this as a field, if I chose to be a pathologist, I would still see obesity all day, every right. day, just because of the sheer volume. So why is it that we don't learn how to treat the disease that causes all the other diseases? We basically don't treat the elephant in the room. We treat around it. We're like, oh, let's treat the elephant's nose and oh, their trunk, or sorry, the trunk. And let's treat their like left foot or whatever. We, we, we have to treat the disease that's causing the disease. Then we're going to do much better as a society in terms of our health outcomes. And we're saying that the increase, the rapid rate of this obesity pandemic, it, it's incredible, right? The growth curve of this, and then of course, all these conditions <laughs> in just the last 20 to 30 years, if you ask most- Our bodies aren't, aren't, aren't meant to be in this obesogenic environment. The things that we always talk about are diet quality and exercise. Those two are great. Okay. But those are just kind of a really small pieces of the pie. Sleep quality and duration, we know, play a large role in how the body regulates weight. Circadian rhythm disturbances. I am lauded, applauded for giving lectures in Melbourne, Australia at three in the morning because I, oh, wow, she's an internationally known expert. Our bodies aren't, I'm not supposed to be up giving a lecture at three in the morning. Mm -hmm. That deviates from circadian rhythm. The hypothalamus controls weight. When we deviate, we affect the suprachiasmatic nucleus. We are now deviating from what our bodies are supposed to do. We're supposed to be awake during the daytime and sleep during the nighttime. When we turn the nail on his head, which is why night shift workers weigh more, it's because their brain is dysregulated with the normal status of affairs. You start seeing that major shift from the night shift workers to the day shift workers and weight status over time. People think, oh, it's the night shift people, they're eating horribly and this, that, and that. Right. No, if you look at their diets, it's the same. It's just that they're not supposed to be awake. You know, we don't, we don't want you to- I can attest to that because I worked the yeah. morning shift for a long time. Well, just and, like bills wiped most in. Of the time, most of the time when you're converting fat to energy, it's while you're sleeping. Would you say, Doc, you know, you're seeing people come in, like you said, the example, you know, you got a guy that's 500 pounds. Traditionally, people are like, well, just start exercising. Can't exercise. He's been exercising. <laughs> yeah. And, well, he yeah. has been. He does. If he's you see the amount of activity he's doing, he, that's all he does. All his Not only that, but he's carrying around an extra 200 something pounds, right? So he's got the lean muscle tissue. And sometimes on yeah. those folks, exercise can be counterproductive because it just creates, you know, more insulin. When you were rattling off those medicines, and I'm being honest because I, mm -hmm. I don't, I'm not embarrassed about this, but you know, I'm on Prozac and the reason I- Well, Prozac is the most weight neutral of the SSRs. So if you're picking one out of that category, that's the best one. So whoever okay. did that, thank your doctor. Okay. That's not what they told me. They said we were surprised you were given Prozac because it causes weight gain. I probably gained like three pounds, like I'm probably like three or five pounds heavier than if I wasn't on it, but it really helped me. What I want to understand from you is when women feel like they need that or their doctors say, you really need help because you can't go through your life miserable. And you right. can't, like, if there's something that's, because for me, it was two concussions and it was, you know, probably a whole bunch of other stuff. But anyway, it has helped me. Mm -hmm. Do I need to go off it? Like, do I? No, no, just, no, no. So this okay. is the thing. It's about weighing the balance. So Prozac, thankfully, is the most weight neutral of what we call the SSRIs. So those are the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, and it is the most weight neutral in that category. So if I find that someone responds to an SSRI for depression, for example, I'm going to try Prozac in that category. The only antidepressant that has been shown to actually cause weight loss and is actually approved by the FDA in combination with another drug called naltrexone for weight loss is bupropion or Wellbutrin. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I for patients that. that struggle with obesity, actually, this is a real talk. My hairstylist, I went in to see her and she was like, yeah, I've gained weight. And I was like, oh, really? And then she's like, yeah, my doctor put me on mirtazapine. I was like, why'd they choose that? 
she was like, well, what do you, why did you say it like that? And I was like, that's the, like one of the worst defenders for weight gain and the antidepressants. Mm-hmm. And I wrote on a card, my card, I said, go take this to your doctor. Tell me you want to go and be program. You're going to do this. And, and she took it to her doctor. She got switched. When I came back to see her two and a half months later, she lost 18 pounds. Now I feel like she should have done my hair for free. So I'm still debating that a bit because I feel like she got free advice, but she changed nothing except the drug, right? The drug changed her weight, went back to what her normal was, but she didn't know the doc didn't know. I told them to change it. And well, I didn't tell them, I suggested to her to tell them to change it. And that brought her back into her normal realm. That's a significant change. Not that three to five pounds is not Erin, but you feel good. It's you're still within good range, 18 pounds within no, that's two a months. Lot. Yeah. Yeah. I right, understand. Yeah. Dr. Okay, Stanford, to, to knock us out of here. So your 10 year vision, mm-hmm. what dent do you want to make in this obesity and, and where do you see it coming from? Like if you, you're, what, what would you see 10 years from now? Number one, from a policy perspective, we have to prioritize it. There's a diabetes caucus. They're all kind of caucuses in Congress. No obesity caucus, despite the fact that it's the most prevalent chronic disease. I think we had a missed opportunity with the recent COVID-19 bill, mm-hmm. since we've seen that obesity is the major risk factor to not address it. No one on Biden's current team is someone that has any knowledge or expertise in obesity. I appreciate the, the focus on COVID, but I think to focus on COVID without focusing on obesity is really missing um, the ball there. Um, I nominate you, to, by the way, to have oh, you nominate. <laughs> I just talked to the White House this week and I basically told them they were missing. I have that. an end. I literally, worry. yeah, I have an end. yeah. You tell, you tell <laughs> the people. Everyone knows everybody. Um, number two, I think that we as healthcare providers need to do better. It is unacceptable the lack of education that doctors, and it's not just doctors, nurses, physicians, assistants across the board, no education about obesity. And yet, what do they tell you to do? Go see your doctor. Go see your healthcare provider to talk about obesity. No one knows. I mean, we have now over 5,000 physicians that are board certified in obesity medicine, but that doesn't touch the 110 million adults. I mean, really, that doesn't divide out very nicely. We need to do better. And those people don't really need to, I mean, we need to have frontline providers being able to care for these patients that have the disease. Number three, we have to reduce our weight bias and stigma. We cannot continue to assume that patients will want to see us be in our setting even go down to the, the, the walk down the street if they know that they're going to be judged just because of the way they look, just like we will talk about race. Weight bias is a significant mm-hmm. importance, and we have to do better. We cannot assume that because that person's walking down the street that they're lazy, they're slothful, they don't exercise, they eat horribly, because you don't know, and you're judging the book by its cover, just because, like you could if I just because I'm black. And that's just unacceptable. So we have to do better. So those are the three, the three big things that I would love to see change. And I think if we see those, see those three things, change the policy perspective, our education or lack thereof, you know, improving that in healthcare as a whole and the bias issue that will begin to make major strides in this disease. But until then, unfortunately, we're going to continue to see that, that mm-hmm. gradual increase as our bodies are just not meant to be in this, this, this environment that we're in. Absolutely. And that last question, you're walking down the street and your theme song is playing. What's your theme song? <laughs> You know, that's interesting. I I, my, I just gave a talk. And so I'm going to use this talk. This is my intro. They had me come into a song. It was funny because I was sitting here. So I don't know if I really walked in. It would have been nice if I were in person. <laughs> but it would be Jill Scott's Living My Life, Life is Golden. And nice. I think that it reflects really how I try to choose to live my life and how I, I think of the work I do with my patients, my students, everyone that I work with. I want everyone to live their best, healthiest self for them, whether it's weight or whether it's in their profession, I want to somehow be a contributor to them being their best self. And so living my life like is golden. Jill Scott, Jill, if you're listening, I adore you. Um, and that's how, that's my theme song. Well, I would, like, I would just like for, you know, as a request from us and, and the rest of the world and the listeners, can you do more, please? <laughs> of course, you know, I, cause I'm just such a slacker, right? Can like, you step it up a notch? I mean, just step it up. Just yeah. like, I mean, I have to work harder. I finished my fifth and what I'm calling fifth and final degree on May 11th but I've said fourth and final and you see how that turned out. The reason why I keep doing this is, is because I feel like there's so much more to learn. And the more that I can learn and the more that I can teach, the better that I think the people I encounter will be to do the best work they can do. And so that's, that's really what drives me and it's what keeps me going. And it allows me to hang out with you guys today. So wow. I really thank you for um, taking our questions. And, and I want to encourage everybody, there are uncomfortable topics to talk about. 
I think obesity is one of them because people have insecurities about it because there's that stigma. Uh, Systemic racism is certainly one that people don't want to talk about because they don't want to reflect internally on what may reflect poorly on them. We have to feel comfortable with being uncomfortable. And, And that is the biggest thing that I, you know, took away from this conversation is that, you know, there were a lot of sensitive topics that you touched on. I try to tell myself, and I know Billy, you do this too, is you have to give up some of your own personal insecurities. Like the fact that I was like, I'm on Prozac, like I need to know about this. If we're all comfortable talking about things that are taboo or that you should, that should be kept private, we all can learn a lot and we can feel better about ourselves. So I think that's another and I think um, you're 100% that you're doing. Correct. And that's what I liked about it. I I didn't see anything as, you know, for me, I've picked really the two most sensitive topics to like my whole life is what the work I do, right? Obesity, racism, those two are like, people were like, wait a minute, you chose both? Um, some of it was by choice, i.e. obesity. You know, the racism piece was not something personally that I chose to be the work that I do, but has been a big part of, of the work I've done for, for, you know, more than two decades. And so I tackle the hard things, you know, if it's easy, what's the point? Let's go home. You know, we can just go and Everybody watch TV. Needs but to listen. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And we learn and we learn. And my patients teach me so much. So if you guys are listening, if you're one of my patients, thank you for teaching me. And thank you for allowing me to tell your stories because they really inform me and I think inform the work. Absolutely. Thank you, Dr. Stamp. We appreciate you. You are amazing. You are amazing. Thank you, Aaron. That was a great conversation. Thanks to our listeners and everyone at Quacks and Hypochondriacs Podcast. Dr. Stanford was amazing. Uh, if you like the show, be sure to rate, review, subscribe, do all the things that help us and help you find the next show and the next episode. And don't forget our sponsor. What is our sponsor again? Oh, that's right. PETRHealth.com. That's PETRHealth.com. This episode was edited and produced by us because Jason didn't show up on time. So thank <laughs> you so much, everyone. Hope you have a great day. Hey there, listeners. Did you know we not only have an award-winning podcast, but we have an amazing blog to go with it? If you go over to BETRHealth.com and click on the blog button, you'll have access to recipes, member stories, food is medicine tips, and so much more. That's BETRHealth.com slash blog.